Hello guys, welcome to the Fasting Feel Good podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Stephanie. It's really easy to say, okay, I'm gonna lose 10 pounds. I'm gonna do it by fasting. We're excited to start. We have the dopamine, but then like two, three weeks into it, you're like, ugh, this is the worst. Like, this is not working. It's not doing fast enough. It takes a lot longer than we all want. <laughs> She's a chiropractor with a background in psychology and neuroscience. She's also the author of The Betty Body and the host of Better with Dr. Stephanie, a podcast that centers on the ideas of always trying to be better than the day before. So today we're going to talk about fasting, fasting for women, and the importance of a holistic health. So let's get started and get right into it. Hey Stephanie, how are you doing? I'm great. I'm so happy to be here. Great. Lovely to have you here. I'm really excited to yeah, get things going and talking, talking more about fasting and especially fasting for women. Um, a huge, huge part of our mission in fasting is to make fasting personalized. So everybody in our community should obviously feel picked up for where they are at right now in their journey. And that's something I know you touched on a lot as well with your work. Um, so how to make fasting work for you, especially when it comes to being a woman. And of course, we want to support our women in the fasting family. So it will be great to dive into that topic. But um, first off, I would love if you could explain what does Betty mean? And um, how do you let this idea like guide you through through your life? Oh, sure. Yeah, what a great question. So when, as you mentioned, I'm a podcast host myself. It's called Better with Dr. Stephanie. And we started calling the fans of our the Better show our Bettys. And when I looked up the word Betty, so if you go to urbandictionary.com, uh, it's, it's a website that has a lot of, you know, modern day slang in it, right? So if you look up the word Betty uh, on urbandictionary.com, I'm paraphrasing, but it says something like, you know, a Betty is a modern day queen. She's intelligent. She's quirky. She's loving. She's driven. And the description, you know, it goes on. But I remember reading it and saying, oh, that's that's who I am. You know, I'm quirky. I'm loving. I'm intelligent. You know, I'm always trying to be the best version of myself. And that's also the type of woman that I want to serve, That the type of woman that I want to empower to make better decisions for herself and for her family. We know that women are the primary decision makers in the home, usually when it comes to health decisions. So whether that's their children, the food that comes into the house, the exercises that they engage in, et cetera. So Betty just stuck. And when I think about being a Betty, this is highly individual. So that might mean for one person, you know, becoming stronger in their weight regimen that might be you know reaching a strength goal it might be losing weight it might be increasing their fasting tolerance it might be just being happy in their body whatever size it is so the book is called the betty you know the book that i wrote is called the betty body but it's really size agnostic it doesn't really have to do with being a size two or being a size four it, like those are you know, those are also arbitrary anyway. It's about a woman feeling great in her body, no matter what size it is, being metabolically healthy, strong, both from a mental perspective, like having mental grit and mental resilience, but also from a physiological perspective, having cellular grit and physiological uh, resistance. So that's what a Betty is. It's sort of a combination of, you know, mind and body and really 
working towards self-actualization, being the best version of yourself in whatever, whatever that means to you. So it's quite, the definition is very fluid and it can really be adapted yeah. for, you know, the individual. Oh, that, that sounds awesome. So like everyone's got their unique path, right? And right. they just um, create their, their temple or their home and um, whatever that is, not just looking good, but like you said, also feeling good and uh, being happy with yourself. I think that's definitely very encouraging and a nice way. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of women have, have um, gone, gone a long way with this. So uh, I love the approach. I also like the... Um, that you be better than you were yesterday, like um, than the day before. I've seen that you talk about that a lot. And um, I would love to hear some, some tips or some advice you can share with our listeners on how to actually be better than you were the day before. Yeah. And actually the name is very intentional. So I didn't call it the best podcast. It wasn't like you have to be number one. It's about better. And it's really this ode to the, it's not the destination, it's the journey. Like, yes, winning, you know, the medal, the gold medal, everyone, you know, there's that glory, but you also want to be thinking about how do you get to being and like, how do you get to be the best? It's this idea that every single day you're looking at who you are today and you're looking to the future, looking where you are right now and saying, what are the next steps that I need to do? So for a lot of women, and my my audience tends to be female, I have men as well. And of course, we love our beautiful men. And we love, you know, we love everybody, um, you know, who wants to listen to the podcast and to, to consume my work. But one of the things that I have really come to understand is as much as I like to geek out on physiology, and I know we're going to talk about physiology today, we're going to talk about fasting, fasting for women and all the metabolic advantages that that confers. One of the things that I have found to be very true is you can do all of those things, but if you are on, if you hate yourself, right? If you have a mindset or, you know, as, um, a friend of mine, Philip McKernan might say your soul set, if you are not happy with who you are, you can talk all about longevity and living a long life, but it's all for naught if you don't love who you are. And so a lot of the work that I try to do is I try to blend a lot of the physiology, like here's, you know, these are some of the benefits fasting for women. These are some of the things that we can consider, you know, whether it's your menstrual cycle or your hormonal composition. And we'll, I know we'll get into that, but I also like to blend that with how do you actually feel about yourself? You know, how do you yeah. divorce yourself in a way from a society that has really taught most women to always be unhappy with who they are, that they always need to buy, you know, the mascara that's going to attract the guy or the purse or the this or the that. Mm -hmm. So um, in terms of advice, I would say one of the things that I think is really important is to get to know yourself. And I know that that's a bit vague, but understand where you come from. So do we have, and everybody has this, do we have traumas or experiences, negative or positive in the past that have shaped who we are today? When we are in conflict, for example, with a partner or a family member, friend, coworker, you know, how do we get activated? Do we get defensive? Do we go on the attack? You know, understanding some of your patterns, um, I think is really important because that allows you to 
um, begin to, first you, you have this awareness of your, of yourself and your patterns, but then you can also begin to heal it because if we are completely unaware of how we react in a stressful situation, you're never going to be able to modify it. So, um, my first tip, although it's quite vague, would be to just start paying attention to how you might react or become activated or triggered, um, in situations that might be stressful to you. Um, do you snap? Do you disassociate? Do, do you verbally shut down? Do you need to leave the room? Are you screaming? Are you, you know, what is, what is happening? And then, um, a, a technique or, um, you know, a practice that I've uh, recently adopted, which I find to be incredibly powerful is, uh, something called conscious self-forgiveness. So, Let's say you and I, Phil, we have a, we have an argument about something and I don't like the way that I showed up in that argument. Afterwards, when I've, you know, when the emotions and the anger and the stress hormones have sort of drained, um, to be able to reflect on how I, you know, may have misstepped or may, how I may have said something that I didn't um, want to say. And then to say, okay, I forgive myself for, you know, I'm just making an example for yelling at Phil or for saying such and such to Phil. The truth of the matter is I was being activated because that's what I was taught as a child. So there's sort of these two pieces to it where it's, I forgive myself for the thing that I didn't like. And then the truth of the matter is, and then we, and then you acknowledge to yourself why that may have happened. And I think that, that, movement or that inching towards self-forgiveness and self-awareness, I think is one of the biggest gifts, man or woman, um, what you can give yourself because so often we are, um, you know, we're unconscious, right? It's like, okay, I got to lose the weight. I got to do this. I got to do that. And it's, it's all done from this punitive negative. Like I have to look a certain way. I have to look like I'm 25 forever. I have to look like I have to have a 26 inch waist or whatever it is. Um, but I think that really coming into your own and really loving who you are and all of the pa- all the light and but all the darkness as well i think will serve um you and just your you know we in your life and you know at the risk of sounding trite i think we we're here once right like it's not a rehearsal like we we're here That's one true. time right and i think the whole pandemic has really highlighted that for many many people worldwide where it's like okay what's really important here um, so that would be my kind of first tip. And then of course, um, moving into some of the physiological realm is uh, like understanding what you want to do. So a lot of women will come to me for weight loss. They'll say, you know, I, I had, I've had kids and, you know, maybe I'm 42 or 55, you know, whatever it is. And I just can't seem to lose that last 10 to 15 pounds. Mm. So understanding why you want to lose those pounds. Is it, you know, to give you more energy to keep up with your kids? Is it, you know, maybe you're a grandmother and you want to be able to take care of your grandchildren. Is it flexibility? Is it strength? Like, you know, really piecing apart what the goal is and then holding on to that because it's really easy to start something like a fat, like, yeah. you know, in fact, it's really easy to say, okay, I'm going to lose 10 pounds. I'm going to do it by fasting. And we're excited to start. We have the dopamine. We have all these neurotransmitters that are like driving us to pers- pursue this goal. But then like two, three weeks into it, you're like, ugh, this is the worst. Like I- I'm bored. Over- like I need to, I- this is not working. It's not doing fast enough. So, um, coming back to the original 
reason why you started is so important to keep you tethered to that goal. Because most goals, whether it's weight loss, hormone balancing, you know, fertility, whatever it is, it takes a lot longer than we all want. <laughs> you know, like we all want, we all want to do it. True. And next week we have the, you know, the beach body, we all want to do it. And then two <laughs> weeks from now it's, it's all done. It takes many months, in some cases, many years um, to fulfill, to make good on that initial goal. So understanding your why before you sort of set out to it, I think is really important too. Well, yeah, that definitely makes sense. And what I really like about that as well is like, you're not comparing yourself to others, right? You focus on yourself and your needs and your desires, like you said, your why, but also not, not really being that hard on yourself. Like, of course, we, we're all humans, we're not perfect and we can mess up sometimes, right? And it's, it's like you said, so important to know where do you want to go? What are your goals? And especially your goals, not goals from other people, right? Like, I, I totally agree. Like a lot of people are often on, on autopilot. I used to be uh, like that when I was younger as well, just chasing after some goals when I really reflected, hey, are they, are they really my goals or am I doing it for someone else? And um, things like that are never sustainable, right? You, because it's not, um, yeah, it doesn't come really intrinsic. And uh, I really love that aspect as well of like self-awareness, going in deeper inside and looking at your, your, yeah, your roots, where do you come from and why are you triggered because of certain things? Because we all carry a story and um, a certain background in us. I, I'm totally with you on that. Like when it comes to like comparing to others or let's say competition, I know that you used to compete in physique competitions too, right? Correct. Yes. So I was in a class called figure. So it's, um, you know, maybe a step above, you know, so bikini, there's bikini, there's figure, and then there's bodybuilding. So bikini, uh, you tend not to see as much muscle development. Um, figure, um, there tends to be, you know, a moderate amount of, of muscle development. And then bodybuilding, as you might expect, is like, you know, a lot of, of muscle development. So it was sort of in the middle. And even to, even to compete, um, in something like that, it was, it was a multi-month, you know, it was, um, I think I, was in preparation mode for about nine months. Wow. It was my first competition, you know, my first one, like my first competition. So I wanted to build up the muscle. And then of course, if anybody's competed, you know about, you know, peak month and peak week where you're really calorically restrictive. And then there's, you know, some not necessarily healthy practices around like water restriction um, to try and get the um, the subcutaneous water drained so that you look good on stage for, you know, for the competition day. So yeah, competed there, learned a lot about myself. Um, I think that, I think a lot of times when we engage in like a big lofty goal, right? So in this case, it might be figure uh, competition, you know, for a, a listener, it might be uh, losing weight or, I mean, it could be in any realm. It could be getting really good grades in school. It could be saving up for a down payment. You know, we all, we often think that the achievement of the goal is going to be much shorter than what it actually is. And you really in the, it's easy, like I was saying, to start mm. in the middle where you sort of don't know which, like you're sort of far enough away from the start goal, but you're enough, you're further, you know, far, still far away enough from the end goal that that's usually where a lot of things fall apart. And you, you know, there was times when I felt like, I wasn't making progress fast enough. I wasn't getting my strength, you know, the strength gains that I was looking for fast enough. I wasn't seeing the muscles develop. And, you know, it takes a lot of courage to say, this is something that's really important to me and I'm going to keep going. It's a lot easier to throw in the towel and say, well, this didn't work for me. 
Oh. Right. Because it's so much more yeah. threatening, right. Yeah. To the ego Definitely. for you to continue with the, with the possibility of failure. Um, so yeah, it was a great experience. Uh, I don't know that I'd do it again. Um, just because of, like I mentioned, like the water restriction and all the stuff that you have to do to get on stage, but like 90% of it was like clean eating, lifting and getting new PRs, like, you know, personal, uh, you know, personal best personal records on, you know, strength gains. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a great experience and I, you know, very proud of my, I came in third. We, I was living in the States, uh, the United States at the time. So I have my, um, it's actually just behind, uh, my trophies just behind, uh, this camera, but yeah, I, I it, I'm proud of it. It was something like it was on my bucket list, followed through on it and, um, yeah, cool. did it. Yeah. Good, good on you. And definitely something to be proud of. Like I have a lot of respect for, uh, things like that as well. I had a few friends who did, um, or competed as well in bodybuilding so um, I know what they went through as well and like I said I've it takes so much discipline and commitment I've got a lot of respect for that and um, yeah I think it's it can be very demanding mentally as well right like if I yes. look back at the time when, with my friends how how they were especially when it came to that phase just before the show with with drinking so much water for example I, I don't know how much they drunk like that must have been I don't know how many liters per day, like 10 liters. I'm, yeah, I'm it was about sure. 10. Is yeah, it was about 10, you know, for the Americans who were listening, about 10 gallons uh, for everyone else, about 10 liters a day. Well, yeah. um, and then about, call it, you know, 24 to 36 hours before the show, like you completely cut all the water out and nobody do this at home. Like, do not try this at home. It's <laughs> awful. Let's not recommend yeah, it's this awful. To, yeah, to we are community. not recommending this. <laughs> no, but that's how you, so your, your body's like, oh, there's all this water coming in. I'm just going to continue to like get rid of. And then, you know, this 24 hour to 36 hour period wow. before the show, you just completely have no water. How, um, did, you, like how a, did you feel then? Like that must have been... Uh, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't great. I mean, I was very thirsty. Uh, I was having dreams of watermelon. So I was dreaming of like, you know, very heavy water content, uh, foods. I also had, um, I think I had a, maybe a sweet potato or something like that to like, you know, the day, like to just absorb even more, uh, water. So I was really dehydrated. Um, you know, looked great on stage, but, but you know, as, uh, okay. but it's not, it's not a healthy, yeah, you know, you may have, looked, you know, we may have looked good, looked but it good, wasn't, but it's, okay. it, it wasn't healthy. And, you know, the first thing that I did, um, after, you know, after the, after the judge, like there was two parts, like the morning part was the actual judging. Mm -hmm. And then the evening was like the show where everyone comes and whatever. Oh, okay. So as soon as the show was done, like the second part, it was like, I want watermelon. I want water. <laughs> and I just drank, like just drank, just drank. Right. And then of course it's gone. Right. Like in an hour you're like, man, like I can't, like I had like striations in my shoulder. You could see every little, anytime I moved my shoulder, you could kind of see the the muscle contraction and within an hour, you know, drinking water, it was like your, your body just is like, Oh my God. So you, you can't see it anymore. So, Whoa. um, whenever you see things in magazines where you see people like completely shredded, you know, they've prepared for that photo shoot, yes. like they have yes. water restricted. So that's not a natural way for a man or a woman, um, to be. And I'll also just throw this in here. Um, my menstrual cycle. So after, so I got down to, I think it was like eight point something percent body fat, Whoa. um, for the show, which is for a woman, for like a woman, you, yeah. I was so, yeah, so low for a woman. So low, I was yeah. amenorrheic. I didn't have my period, okay. um, for a couple months leading up to the show. And then after the show, it was so like the three to four months afterwards, mm -hmm. my cycle was just a gong show. It was, 
you know, lots of cramping, lots of irregularities, all the things. And, um, and you know, I'm a, I'm a very competitive person. So I was like, I'm going to do the show and I'm going to, you know, so I got down to like an incredibly low weight, but it wasn't uh, in terms of body fat. Um, but as women, we actually need a certain amount of fat to, to have a menstrual cycle. And for women in their reproductive years, um, this is a, uh, you know, I talk about this in the podcast, talked about this in the book. This is a vital sign, right? For women. So Mm -hmm. in the same way that, you know, if I were to say to you, Phil, let's take a look at your heart rate. Let's take a look at your respiratory rate. Let's take a look at your, um, you know, blood pressure. These are vital signs for a woman of one of the you know, additional vital signs is the integrity of her menstrual cycle. So does she have cramping? Does she experience Mm. PMS? What does her bleed week look like? And we can, we can get into these things if you like or not, but just know that for a woman, you need a certain amount of body fat in order for you to, to ovulate, uh, to release the egg, which is actually the point um, of a menstrual cycle. It's not just to have a period, which everyone, you know, we all know when we're on our period, but like for women, the point of your menstrual cycle is to ovulate. Um, and so if you don't have enough fat, your body's going to say, listen, like this is dangerous. I don't want to, I can't have you pregnant if there's not enough fat to feed the baby. Right. So you will lose your period. You will lose your ability to ovulate, um, when your body fat uh, percentage is, is low. And you see that in a lot of, uh, female athletes, actually, you'll see, um, whether it's competing in the competing world or it's in professional sport where they are so lean, um, that they, they often are amenorrheic. They don't have a regular cycle. Well, yeah, that, that is very interesting. Of course, I'm, I'm not a woman, but, um, the majority of our community is female. So it's definitely interesting to hear about that. And, uh, having an expert like yourself talking about it. I mean, you've probably learned so much through through that competition as well. Like I said, I don't want to knock it. I've got huge respect for it, but probably change your perspective and your opinion on health in general as well, right? Of course, like you said, the, the training and the clean eating, that's, that's good. But going to such an extreme for that show and then maybe even having... Um, yeah, very sub- subjective opinions of judges, right? Correct. One judge can say, hey, yeah. it, it's good. The other one says, no, it's not. Right. Like, that's probably, I, ca- I can just imagine how that must feel for you. I mean, you, you did really well. You you came in third, but um, like that must must have changed a lot, right? Like your, like I said, the opinion on health in general. Did you question that afterwards? Absolutely. Well, even if you look at, so afterwards, uh, so I competed in um, the National Visite a physique committee, so the MPC. Um, and afterwards you get uh, a copy of the judges scorecards of you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, which is, I don't know if that's really great for mental health, but we still got them. Right. So, um, so we, there were some judges that thought I should have been first and there were just as many judges that thought I should have been fifth, okay. you know, so it's, it's completely subjective. So some people thought I was the winner. Some people thought I should have done more, you know, I should have ranked lower than what I did. And then the majority was sort of like threes, like, you know, twos and threes. And then I think it averaged out to like third place. So talking about subjectiveness, like for as, as long as I have, uh, you know, been concerned with, you know, the exterior or how I look that the ideal female body, um, is always changing. So when Mm -hmm. I was, when I was younger, um, you know, kind of, you know, in, grade seven, grade eight, grade nine, grade 10, there was, um, 
the rise of the supermodels. So there was the Kate Moss and the, uh, at the time there was this sort of um, grunge, I'm totally dating myself now, but there's sort of this like grunge <laughs> movement, uh, at least in, at least in North America, where women were praised for being very slim very skinny, you know, the thigh gap, right? Like to make sure that your thighs didn't touch, uh, to sort of have this waif-like appearance. And now, and so when I was young, it was like, man, I'm never going to look like that. Like my background is, you know, I'm uh, part Portuguese, part Lebanese. Like I'm a very curvy, naturally person. My legs, you know, my thighs touch, you know? Mm. Um, but now you fast forward to, now and we see a lot that that body ideal has completely shifted yeah. right now we see the the kim kardashians and the beyonce's and the j-lo's um who like you know j-lo i remember when i was young and i remember first seeing her on stage i was like oh my god she's like the first person that looks like me you know like the first person i'd ever seen on yeah. television that was like kind of a bit darker and like curvier and stuff um, but now it's it's like this really curvy, big booty kind mm. of um, body ideal. And I think for women, um, it's an it's a never ending target, right? So you can go you can try so hard to look like Kate Moss and then it's like and then it flips and now it's like now you gotta get butt implants, right? <laughs> so it's like you can you can never win. Yeah. So the the best thing that you can do as a woman is to say, okay, I honor all these shapes and sizes, like the Kate Moss to the Jennifer Lopez, and I'm just gonna do me. Like I'm just gonna be the best version of myself. Because if you get the butt implants and you do all the glute exercises, like in five, 10 years, like that's not going to be in vogue anymore. That's not going to be the ideal. There's going to be something else that comes. Um, and that that's actually just been more of a lifelong observation yeah. because I remember just totally not fitting into the waif look. And now, you know, the way that I look is much more, you know, celebrated or, you know, the curviness, whatever. But I also understand that that is also transient. Like there's going to be something else that comes that's more, you know, that becomes the ideal, that becomes the standard of beauty. And those things always change. So as a woman, no matter what you look like, just do you, just do the best version of you. And that might, and you can incorporate the fasting and you can incorporate the nutrition and the exercise, just do the best version of you. Cause that's, that's the, like the sexiest, the most beautiful thing, um, that that's around. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's, that's just the thing, right? It, it changes throughout generations and, um, yeah, what is, what is the ideal beauty? But at the end of the day, like you said yourself, like, um, genetics play a big role as well and it's just because let's take a Kate Moss obviously she's a beautiful lady but um, everyone is beautiful in their in their own like it's, it's all individual beauty and that's just so important to understand I, I think it's just so confusing and I find it then of course for men as well like having a certain image to be shown okay you have to be strong if you're really thin then you're not a real man but especially for women i can really understand how hard that must be especially like growing up as a young girl and always being taught okay this is how you should look like you should be pretty and all these things and it can obviously encourage um young young females to just have low self-esteem then right and that's just like what, what we try to tackle as well and really find it important to give people individual guidance but also educate them there's so many myths out there or 
just wrong advice. And that's where we just want to really educate and say, okay, what, what is health? Like there's so many factors at the end of the day. It's not just physical, it's also mental factors as well. Like you said as well um, before, like not just looking good, but it's also about feeling good and not and if you're not the ideal then that's okay you're still beautiful Absolutely. it doesn't make you less beautiful and you've got different different beauties be with what will come with you and i think that's just so important to understand right like like i said what what is health and health is for me not just the looks but also your mind like you have to have a healthy mind and that just really plays a big part and what we try to do as well like to maybe touching on to to fasting a bit as well like well when we say okay it's it's also giving your body rest, giving some time to rest. And what I've obviously discovered when, in my fasting journey as well was the the mental benefits from it and just seeing all these, um, yeah, more focus, more energy. And that's what we really try to bring out there. Like, of course, like if you want to lose weight, that's totally fine. But it's more like a positive side effect, what we say with fasting. It's more about the health benefits and just touching on that. I think it's, it's so important to... Yeah, really, education is the key, and the more we do that, and and like yourself, like people out there who really bring health to the world, not just physical but also mental, and help people like getting to know themselves, feeling beautiful, feeling good because they've deserved it. I think that's that's so important. But maybe just to touch on on your personal fasting experience, like, do you fast regularly? I do. Yeah, I and my fasting. Um, has really changed over many years. So when I first started fasting, um, we'll say probably now it's like five, six years ago, I was really uh, into it. Um, I was doing um, longer fasts. So I would, um, and this is part of the you know origin story of the book as well. So I was pretending like I was a little man. <laughs> you know, so I okay. would see people who were doing like seven day fasts, you know, five day yeah. fasts, and I'm like. I'm going to do that too. Like I'm strong. I, you know, I like, I have the wherewithal, I have the mental, I'm going to do it. And, um, so I was doing these long water fasts and like you were saying, lots and lots of mental clarity. Um, I did find that, you know, the first, you know, maybe six months I would do one of these, um, longer fasts, like once a month. So at the end of the month, I would do like a five day, like a three to five day fast. And then I, I sort of noticed, um, yeah, somewhere in the six to nine month mark of, of doing this very consistently that the benefits started to, uh, diminish a little bit. So I was noticing day three, day four, I would have this brain fog. I didn't have this like clarity of thought that I was enjoying before. And then I also started to, again, notice changes in my menstrual cycle. So if I did the seven day fast, you know, I may not have had, you know, the length of, um, you know, my bleed week was shorter or the leading up to, uh, that first week of the menstrual cycle was much more difficult. And so I started paying attention uh, with myself and also with my patients uh, at the time we were, you know, I was running a nutrition program um, in my clinic. We were doing more of a ketogenic style, mm-hmm. so like carbohydrate restricted um, diet. And we were also incorporating fasting. And I started just noticing for women 
where they were fasting in their cycle and how easy or difficult it was. And one of the patterns that emerged, and my, my, I also tracked with this really well, is that in the first two weeks of a woman's cycle, so um, there's sort of two main parts of a woman's cycle. We have the follicular phase, which is the first two weeks, and then the second two weeks is called the, the luteal phase or okay. the secretory phase. So in the follicular phase, so that includes um, your bleed week and then the week right before you ovulate, much easier for women to fast. So to do more of like the water fasting. So they could really uh, engage in either like a 24 hour or even a multi-day fast, like maybe 36 hour, 48 hour, 72 hour, much easier to do in week one and two of their cycle. And then once the woman ovulated and she was in that uh, luteal phase of her cycle, if she was a woman who tended to be more uh, if she had PMS, um, or if she had digestive issues, or if she had any metabolic dysfunction, these last two weeks of her cycle, we would see more inflammation, like more evidence of inflammation. So like maybe her rings weren't, you know, on her fingers as, you know, getting on her fingers as easily. There was like yeah. the joints were swollen or she was retaining water or she was having more digest, like her bowel movements weren't as regular. Her sleep was more disturbed. She was noticing more like moodiness and irritability. If we were to implement a 24 hour, 48 hour fast in this time, it was much more difficult for her to complete. So her hunger signals were, uh, amplified. Her sleep was much more disturbed. Uh, there was all these other things. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. So we started playing with the types of fasts for women. So in that follicular phase, the first two weeks, water fasts are great. So if you're someone who already kind of fasts, you know, and you want to play with maybe a longer fast, the first two weeks of your cycle as a woman is a great time to experiment. Mm -hmm. So if you're already maybe doing a, um, you know, it's often called time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting, like where you're not changing so much what you're eating. You're just sort of limiting the time in which you eat the food. You can do that all through your cycle. But if you're like, you know, I'd, I'd like to see what it's like to do, uh, you know, an OMAD, like a one meal a day. Like I'd like to try a 24 hour fast. Yes. The first two weeks of your cycle are an excellent time because you're just generally more resilient to st more stressors here. Okay. Um, yeah. So that would be kind of my, you know, that was like one thing that I noticed, um, with my women and so my, you know, to answer your original question, I used to do these really long fasts and now I've really moved into a place where I will typically do a TRE, like a time-restricted eating uh, schedule. I do that pretty much daily. Um, and then I'll play with maybe longer fasts in that first two weeks. So I might do like a 24 hour or I might do, you know, a lot of times my TRE is like, you know, 10, 14 maybe. So it's like 14 hours of fasting, you know, 10 hour eating window, or it could be a 16, eight, you know, that's really common as well. So eight hours of an eating window, 16 hours of a, uh, a fast, but I may like bump it up a notch. So instead of doing a 16, eight, I might just do, I might do an 18, six, uh, or I might do like a 24 hour. So just eating like just a dinner time and then eating again, dinner time the next day. So that's, um, that's how I typically fast now. And then when I'm in my luteal phase or when my my clients are in their luteal phase, I actually change the type of fasting. So I move away from like a water mm -hmm. only fast and water, herbal tea, you know, black coffee. And I'll move into, you know, we were talking in the pre-chat about these fasting hotels and like how you get yeah. broth and stuff. So I will, you know, give them more of a bone broth um, type of uh, 
So if they wanted to just restrict their calories during the day, um, they'll sip on bone broth or a type of, um, you know, chicken, chicken broth or whatever through the day. So they're still getting some calories or getting some protein from the collagen and the, um, uh, and the things from the bone marrow, but it's not a, um, it's not a, it's not a, pure fast, right? Like some fasting purists might say that's not a fast, you know, but, uh, I consider that a fast. I consider that a caloric liquid fast. So you're still restricting your calories and you're, you're, you're getting some liquid with some, some types of protein, a little bit of fat, that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. That's amazing. I would love to dive in a bit deeper, especially for our female listeners, because they will probably be very interested in what works what works best for you, but what advice you can give as well for actually starting out. And um, like we said before, like it's so individual and you touched on it as well. Like women are not little men, like women are women, men are men. So obviously it's it's totally different and you have to be aware of it, especially with um, including that with your cycle. That, that would definitely interest our listeners. So if you could um, elaborate on that a bit more, that would be wonderful. Sure. Yeah, I think the number one rule for fasting, you know, men, women, any, you know, anything in between, right. Is when you, you, your body is telling you it's time to stop. You need to honor those signals. So if you are feeling lightheaded or you're feeling brain foggy, or you're feeling like you might pass out, you need to get some food into your body. So that's the time to break the fast. And I was one of the people who was like, I was on the seven day fast. It was like day five. And I thought I was going to pass out. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it do not do that. Um, honor what your body is, is telling you. So that's kind of number one. Um, when you're, when you're starting off on your fasting journey, I really like to temper it. I like to start off slowly and improve and increase the tolerance for fasting over a long Delta T over a long period of time. If you were to go from like never fasting and I was like, great, tomorrow you're not going to eat for two days. You know, like you're not, you're going to just jump into a 48 hour fast. You, you could probably do it, but you're going to hate it. It's going totally. to feel awful. Totally going to hate it, yes. You're going to hate it. And then your likelihood of coming back to that practice in the future is very, very low. Definitely. And one of the keys with fasting is that you, it's a practice that is easy and can fit into your lifestyle over the long term. That's actually how you reap the benefits. It's not the one time that you fast. It's the several, it's the accruing and the accumulation of the benefits of fasting um, over time. So rule number one is, well, rule number one, as I said before, is if you're feeling lightheaded or you feel like you're going to eat. Rule number two is to just be gentle with yourself, you know, just slowly work on increasing your tolerance. So a lot of times I'll counsel women if they've never uh, fasted before, I'll say, just start with a 12-12. Like, let's just do a 12-hour eating window and then a 12-hour complimentary fast, 24 hours in a day, 12-12. So when you're thinking about how that might work, how that, you know, that works in, you know, the application of that, you know, if you wake up, let's say seven, eight in the morning, you have, you know, your cup of coffee, your breakfast, whatever, that starts the clock, right? So that's when you break your fast. Maybe you have some eggs or bacon, whatever you're having. And then you have, let's say you start eating at at seven in the morning. You have until seven in the evening to eat yes. all your food, right? Really nice, long window. You have lots of time in there to allow for digestion and then come back to you know, your next meal. 
And then the 12 hours of fasting, you know, the majority of that is while you're asleep, right? So hopefully most of you are sleeping eight to nine hours a night. If you're not, you know, that would be another really good tip uh, for you in terms of, you know, just physiology. Yeah. And sometimes like, yeah, life is, is like that. Right. Um, but eight to nine hours of your 12. Now, all that means is that maybe you're extending the time from the time of waking to when you eat, mm-hmm. or ideally you're extending your last meal. So dinner, um, to when you go to sleep and, you know, this is the work of Dr. Sachin Panda uh, at the, I believe it's at the Salk Institute, where he's done a lot of work on circadian fasting and the benefit of actually having your last meal. So your supper, your dinner, um, you know, two to three hours at least uh, between that meal and the time that you retire for bed. And what that allows for, of course, it allows the stomach to empty. It allows a a good portion of the small intestines to absorb the bolus that you've had. And it allows for a more restful sleep. A lot of times when, and I hear this a lot with the 16-8. So a lot of times people will say, well, I won't, I'll skip breakfast and I'll only start eating at noon. And that means that I can eat until 8 p.m. But if you're eating at 8 p.m. and then you're going to bed at 10 you know, you're, it's, it's a little, it's a little tight, right? We want to allow for the, we want to allow for that digestive system to, to clear. So starting off with a 12, 12, super easy. And then, um, I might get her to do that, you know, two, three weeks, like until it's like just a non-issue, she's just doing it kind of naturally on her own. And then I might just tighten that window up a squeak. So instead of doing a 12 hour feeding window, it might be 10. So now instead of fasting for 12 hours, she's fasting for 14. And that is really nice. Um, Those two, like the 12-12 and the 10-14 are really beautiful most of your cycle, like, you know, for the majority of your cycle, Mm -hmm. but especially in the last two weeks of your cycle where you're under the influence of, so uh, once you ovulate, you will start to see a hormone called progesterone uh, start to be secreted. And this is coming from the corpus luteum. Uh, Mm -hmm. The whole idea here is that your body is basically waiting for a fertilized egg. So whether or not you want children, this happens, you know, you know, outside of your desires, right? So progesterone is going to stimulate your appetite. Uh, She's going to disrupt uh, your bowels. She will slow down your bowels. Um, she has some really nice, um, influence on our brain, like some of the neurotransmitters in particular, the one I'm thinking of is GABA, which helps us, um, have a better night's sleep. We're much more, much calmer under uh, the influence of progesterone, but it's harder to, uh, it's harder to do a longer fast. She's also progesterone also stimulates. I think I mentioned this stimulates your appetite. So it's nicer to be able in those last two weeks of your cycle to be able to extend your feeding window because you're naturally going to be hungrier. And this is where I, you know, a lot of women might be like listening and saying, like, I don't want to eat longer. I I need to keep it all like, you know, I need to keep it all tight and do the 16, eight all month long. And I promise you, um, this is not because I'm trying to get you to gain weight. I'm not trying to sabotage your efforts. This is just what your body needs, right? Your body is creating every month as a woman, we create a new organ. We create this mm. uterine, this endometrial lining, um, again, irrespective of whether you want a child or not. So you have to respect and honor uh, 
um, your unique physiology and the, and the, and the consequences of that, like in that luteal phase, those last two weeks of your cycle, you're going to be hungrier. You're going to have more cravings. Um, so to give yourself the flexibility, you know, flexibility of thought, but also flexibility in practice of the fasting to, you know, to reduce or rather to extend the eating window, to reduce the fasting, uh, time, because this is just a time where you need more food and it's not because you're going to gain weight. Your body's literally throwing all the substrates, like all the food that you eat, the carbohydrates gets turned into glucose, the proteins go into amino acids, the fat into fatty acids and maybe ketone bodies. All those things are being thrown into the uterine lining to build it up, to thicken it up. Yeah. So it's not like you're eating more and you're just gaining weight. It's your body is, there's a, there's a physiological need for this increase, uh, this increased metabolic rate. So, um, that's how I would, that's how I would ca counsel a woman to start is like really gentle. And then in that second week, second two weeks, second half of the cycle to just kind of keep it loose, right? Like you may even need a longer feeding window than 12 hours. Like that might also be true for you as well. I think as we begin to, um, kind of, you know, cut the energetic cords around, like, I'm not, I'm failing, I'm not doing it right. You know, you have to be able to respond appropriately to your internal environment. Um, and that includes changing the way that you fast through your cycle. Definitely. That, that is great advice. And I think uh, for all our female listeners out there, it's, it's so important to really just start gentle and make it work for you. Like it's, it's your life, it's your journey, your individual journey and take it step by step, right? Like just realizing it is a journey, not a race and taking That's it right. slow. And mm -hmm. then after a while, obviously you can, you can go up with the hours if your body tells you, yes, I feel good with this and I'm used to it, but like just going in like, uh, yeah, 100% straight away is sometimes not, not the ideal way to go because you can then lose the motivation quite quick because, yeah, it's, 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 for, it's a lifestyle, it's sustainable if it's done correctly and definitely very helpful, I think, what you've, what you've just said. And I also would like to touch on, because I think this is so important as well, to talk about the, the eating window, right? Because this is for me or that's what we try and advise our users especially female users as well like take a gentle approach start with 12 12 or 14 10 but really pay attention to your eating window like if you really make sure that you get the right nutritions in in your eating window you will probably won't have these hunger cravings and uh, because your body will have adapted to it because yeah you you are nourished and obviously if you're in a calorie um if your calories are not enough, you haven't taken enough calories in and maybe even the wrong ones as well, let's say just eating processed food and refined sugars, then obviously your body will be telling you, I need more, I need, I need my vitamins, I need all these, all these good stuff, what is missing. So maybe you've got some advice for our female users for, yeah, creating the eating window in a, in a positive way, what works for them, or maybe what actually worked for you as well, where you said this, is, this was something you've learned along the way, where you say if, if you build this into your eating window, like your fasting window was um, easier to get through. Yeah, I think that um, when we think about constructing a meal, when we think about the macronutrients and the micronutrients, um, one of the things that I think is, is most important is thinking about how we can first 
prioritize protein. Um, if you think of the word protein, you know, if you sort of break it down, protos from the Greek first. Um, and then, so we're, it's the first nutrient. If you look at every single cell and almost every single cell in the body, there's proteins. Um, we need protein. So for women um, and men, I would say that you want to be thinking about reducing, as you just said, the processed carbohydrates, the refined sugars, even unfortunately, there are so many sneaky sugars. Like most women, like most people will say, well, I don't put any sugar in my coffee. I don't have the white powdery stuff, right? Yeah. But a lot of times when you have, uh, if you order in, um, or if you, you know, even even like something like as simple as a tea, like there's some, uh, there's companies, um, at least in North America that have sort of been outed for like having these herbal teas. And then when you look, there's sugar and like they'll, you know, they take, they deconstruct the tea bag and there's sugar in them. Because yeah. sugar generally sends a message of safety to the brain, right? So when yes. we were more, you know, hunter-gatherers, more nomadic, finding things that were sweets were usually safe, right? So if you found a, like a like a raspberry bush or, you know, something, you know, fruit tree or whatever, these are usually safe foods. And of course, we also don't necessarily have the um, the regulation mechanisms um, in our digestion to make us stop having sugar. So there's there's actually been some really interesting um, literature, and I know I'm going off on a little tangent, but I think it's worth, worth stopping here. There's been some literature um, that has demonstrated, some studies that have demonstrated that even when the subjects of the study didn't know that they were eating sugar. So they had numbed, you know, they had mm. numbed the tongue, numbed the oral cavity. There's, there's sensing neurons in the gut that can tell, you know, that will make you want a certain food. So they had given these subjects, uh, sugary foods. They had no idea that there was sugar in them. And they, and they said, you know, they said, which foods would you eat again? You know, they had given them sugary foods, bitter foods, uh, and sort of like sugar neutral or sweet neutral foods. And f there was a statistically significant, like far greater than chance, you know, these subjects wow. went for the sugar foods because we have these and in, in our gut, we have these sugar sensing almost neurons and enzymes that will send a message to the brain and say, eat more of that. It's good. Right. So, yes, yeah. so they, so there's a lot of companies that obviously know that. And so they are going to sneak sugar into their food. Why? So that you'll go back and buy it again. Um, so you have to be conscious of that. So a lot of, you know, a lot of people that I, I've worked with or that I, you know, counsel, they'll say, oh, I don't have sugar. And it's like, okay, well, we actually have to look at the processed foods that you're having because it's more likely than not that they have found a way, whether they've changed the name, they've changed it to some beautiful, exotic, you know, name, or they just haven't, they haven't labeled it. I mean, labeling is also just another completely separate issue with food. But you have to, you know, when you are eating whole foods, you, you know, and I, I just, I often say this in, in jest, but if you go to the grocer, you go to the grocery store, like broccoli doesn't have a label, right? It's like, you know what you're getting, it's broccoli, right? But if you get, you know, broccoli, some sort of broccoli pasta or broccoli, whatever, you know, broccoli may be part of it, but there's a lot of other stuff that's in there as well, right? So, Definitely. yeah, so just wanted to stop just at that little like food labeling no, no, and big it. food, I, I like... It makes totally sense and just maybe just one comment on that it's probably because your body as well it, it senses okay i'm getting energy and we obviously that's where we come from correct and our body is there to survive like living in the times we do now like this hasn't been the case 
a few hundred years ago. So our body is obviously still adapted to that. When he gets energy, he wants more of that. So I can totally refer Correct. to that. And I think it's very interesting. And it's easy, right? Yeah. When you have glucose, when you have, or sometimes it's, uh, you know, galactose or it's fructose or, or sucrose, whatever, like that's really easy to create ATP. It's really easy to create energy out of that simple uh, sugar. So, um, so let me, so let me back up now to your original question, which was, uh, how do we structure our meals? So usually I am very much, um, the way that I eat now is a combination of a ketogenic. So I sort of alternate weeks of a ketogenic diet, which is more of a restricted carbohydrate diet, essentially. Mm -hmm. So there's like, you know, moderate proteins, mm -hmm. there's a higher fat content, and then I'll alternate that with higher protein, slightly higher carbohydrates. So the way that that kind of works in practice is, um, you know, 70, 20, 10, so 70% fat, 20% protein and 10% carbohydrates is my keto week. That's usually how I structure things that week. And then when I'm having a higher protein, like when I'm cycling a higher protein, it will be, you know, 40% fat, let's say 40% protein and then 20% carbohydrates. And I really like this for, um, for women in terms of the application of a ketogenic diet, A, to match up with their menstrual cycle if you're in your reproductive years, but B, just adherence um, to healthy living. Yeah. A lot of times when I have women say, oh, I've tried keto, you know, I was able to do it for a couple of weeks and I just couldn't, I couldn't stick with it for, you know, for whatever reason. A lot of times it's because they were on keto for too long, you know, so for a woman, we, you know, we were back to kind of what we were talking about before we're, we need a certain amount of fat, right? So whether that's adipose tissue that we are carrying or we're getting from the diet, we need to have a certain amount of fat in order for us to have robust reproductive function. So, but when you're only having fat, like when you're only doing that 70, 20, 10, um, over time that can affect neurotransmitters, it can affect your serotonin levels, it can affect dopamine, um, all of these things that are involved in motivation and desire. Um, so we tend to quit. So I like to play with the keto week and then alternate that with higher protein and higher carbohydrates. And the reason for that is when we are improving or increasing our uh, protein consumption, one, it has a thermogenic effect, right? So it's, you know, to break down protein specifically, if you're having meat yeah. products, um, you know, it takes, it takes a lot of energy to do that. Very satiating protein makes you feel full. And then I will also, uh, the other really important thing with increasing your protein, and this is very important for men and women, but particularly my women who are in their forties and their fifties is that when you consume enough protein, you will start a, a process in the body called muscle protein synthesis. And it's just what it sounds like. You're synthesizing new muscle protein. And for women, this is important for us because muscle, like our lean muscle mass is intimately connected with our bone density. So as we age, as we go from being in our 20s and 30s, and then we move into sort of our 40s and our 50s, maintaining your lean muscle mass becomes ever more important mm. because if you don't have muscle mass, you will begin to lose it, right? It's that yeah. use it or lose it principle, but it also will affect your bone density. So when we now move into menopause, where we have this cessation of this cycling, you no longer are bathing your cells, your, uh, your muscles and your bones in estrogen, which is, um, you know, it's an, 
it's anabolic hormone, trophic hormone, growth hormone, you will now begin to lose muscle mass and mm. bone density okay. at a, a, a press, like a much higher rate than you would have if you were, um, you know, in your, in your menstrual years. So alternating these weeks of keto and then high protein, and I also bump up the carbohydrates that week too. So we go from 10% carbohydrates in, in week one to 20% in week two is of course, carbohydrates is going to, you know, hopefully it's a, you know, plant-based, like it's like the sweet potatoes or it's the, the you know, the green leafy vegetables, the good, the good stuff, not the Haagen-Dazs, but like the, you know, the vegetables, right? Um, you're going to get an insulin spike from that, right? Yep. So when you break down carbohydrates, the substrate is glucose. Glucose, of course, is going to stimulate the beta cells in the pancreas to release insulin. And then insulin is also an anabolic hormone. It is a hormone for growth. So when you are trying to build muscle as a woman, this should be one of your top priorities. Increasing the protein is going to help you do that. Hopefully you're also resistance training in the gym, but that's, you know, maybe a separate conversation. But when you, when you combine the protein with the carbs, now you have this sort of synergistic um, anabolic effect. So you can really, and your muscles, um, you know, just by sheer weight are the biggest, uh, you know, uh, glucose sink in the body. They're the biggest glucose disposal agent. Your muscles will sop up all the glucose much more so than your liver can, or, you know, any other, any other organ uh, or tissue in the body. So we want to be sort of alternating between these two, um, macronutrient compositions, um, of the diet to be able to, um, you know, in, in the first week you're restricting your insulin, right? You're, you're, you're becoming more insulin sensitive by restricting the, the carbohydrates and then almost allowing for that spring, you know, you kind of clamp down on the spring in week one and then week two, you let the spring fly, right? So you have more protein, more carbohydrates to allow for those growth pathways. And what I have found with women is they're really able to like they're really able to keep to this week one, week two rhythm for much longer than if I were to just say, okay, you're going to do keto forever. (laughs) You know, you're just going to be like, you're just going to be restricting your carbs forever because it just has for women, it just has this deleterious effect on our mood, on our sleep, on our, you know, menstrual cycle, all the things. Wow. Yeah. That that's like for me as well, like a lot of information there as well, what I didn't know before, especially for, for the female body. And it, definitely makes sense and I mean like h- how does that feel for you to to see all these women you are helping along with with their journey that must be a, an awesome feeling right oh my gosh it's the best it's it's the best feeling because I think that you know oftentimes when we look at literature when we look at the research you know it's getting better now um, but really women are often excluded from research papers if you look um, you know, when you look at studies, even on fasting, most of the studies are done on men. And then we just sort of take that and we're like, okay, well, we're little men. So we'll just do the same thing as, you know, so there's, there's not a lot of information in terms of how we can adapt things like fasting or nutrition or exercise to our menstrual cycle. And that's sort of my, you know, my secret dream really with my career is to be able to empower women right now in terms of how to understand that their hormones are actually their superpowers. And once you sort of learn the ebbs and flows of your hormonal environment, you can adapt your fasting, you can adapt your nutrition, you can adapt your exercise. 
And then for those women to be able to teach their daughters, right? That's an, like, we're not taught in, we're not taught about our fertility yeah. in school. We're taught to fear our fertility, but we're not taught about yeah. how it works. So these women, you know, these mothers, these aunts, these, you know, grand, like for us to teach our daughters, our granddaughters, our nieces, um, you know, what it, what it is to be a woman and how we can alter uh, the way that we interact with, you know, food, which we all have to interact with and, you know, movement and, and supplementation and all of these different things. Wow. That, that's a great vision. And I wish you the best of luck with that. And obviously if I can support in any way, I would love to do that. Like feel free to contact me and Thank thanks you. so much for, for joining us today, Stephanie. Like it really was a pleasure and having you here. And I've certainly like, yeah, gotten so much great advice and all the listeners and our community too. So thank you so much for the food for thought. And uh, for, yeah, thank you. coming here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm just so honored to be here. It's been a great conversation. Definitely has. Thank you so much. And for all the listeners out there, like fasting and holistic health should always work with you, your body and your life. That's what we could take from today's guest, Dr. Stephanie. So thanks again for that. And if you're interested in checking out Dr. Stephanie's work, she has an amazing podcast called Better with Dr. Stephanie, as well as her book, The Betty Body. So check the link in the description for information or the links there obviously to them. And yeah, as always, thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time on the Fastic Feel Good podcast. Mm-hmm.